Hello and welcome to the web events of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Good morning from London and uh, welcome wherever you are. My name is Jonathan Charles. I'm a broadcaster and communications strategy. Uh, I'm also the EBRD's former managing director for communications and business information services. Today, we're looking at the new economic forecast for the EBRD regions and the underlying trends amid several shocks. These are very worrying times for both those regions and many advanced economies. In my lifetime, we probably have to go back to the energy shocks of the 1970s for a parallel. Russia is escalating its war on Ukraine. The conflict's economic cost is growing too. This winter promises to be tough for many, even in advanced economies. Some, of course, will have to think twice before heating their homes, choosing between eating or heating. Others will be hard-pressed to feed their families. Inflation is back and has reached levels not seen since the 1990s. Our latest regional economic prospects report looks at what's driving those trends. So please welcome our economic heavyweights to help us analyse what is going on. Beata Javorczyk is the EBRD Chief Economist and Professor of Economics at the University of Oxford. Heike Harmgart is the Managing Director for the Southern and Eastern Mediterranean region here at the EBRD. And Sergei Guriev is Professor and Provost at Sciences Po in Paris, former EBRD Chief Economist, of course. Whether you're watching us on LinkedIn or YouTube, please feel free to post your questions in the comment boxes. We'll pick them up in the uh, last 15 minutes or so and ask a few of them for you. Uh, let's start now with an overview of economic growth across the EBRD regions. Are we seeing a further slowdown? What should we be worried about? Energy, food, inflation? What's changed since May? Let's answer some of those questions. Beata, over to you. Thank you, Jonathan. The economic performance of our regions during the first half of this year was surprisingly strong as consumers were consuming savings accumulated during COVID and exports uh, remained at a high level. However, this boom is coming to an end as the impact of the energy crisis, high inflation and uncertainty caused by the war are putting brakes on the economies. And the prospect of slowdown in Western Europe will certainly take a toll on exports uh, from the broadly defined European neighborhood. So that has led us to revise up our forecast for this year. However, we are less optimistic about next year and our forecast has become bleaker. We are in for a hard and cold winter. Yeah, that certainly sounds uh, very worrying, Beata. Sergey, perhaps I could turn to you. What about Russia and Ukraine? Uh, indeed, Jonathan, uh, Russia and Ukraine stand out in this report, which I highly recommend to read. Everybody should, should read this report. It's a rich report uh, talking not only about Russia and Ukraine, but of course, the most important event of this year is Russia's war on Ukraine, which triggered uh, many of those crises you mentioned, Jonathan and Beata. And basically, uh, as you can see, EBRD uh, lowered uh, the uh, forecast uh, for 2020 recession in Russia, but actually suggested that this recession will continue well into 2023. Uh, in, on Ukraine, EBRD kept the same forecast for uh, 2022 minus 30%, which is a huge, huge fall. Uh, EBRD cites uh, high levels of uncertainty, and it's hard to disagree with that. This is unprecedented time. It's very hard to imagine how a country can still function, but it does. 
with a budget deficit of something like $5 billion per month, which adds up to, over the year, adds up <clears throat> to about half of uh, uh, its annual GDP or maybe 30% of its annual GDP, again, depending on how you count exchange rates and, and things like that. Um, um, and um, the recovery forecast in 2023 is actually now decreased by Iberdi economists in their forecast. So situation is difficult in both of these countries, but as Leo Tolstoy would say, all unhappy families are unhappy in, in, each, uh, in each own way. And uh, of course, in Russia, the situation is difficult because of huge sanctions. In Ukraine, the situation is difficult because of Russia's aggression. By estimates of Kiev School of Economics, about $120 billion of uh, Ukrainian infrastructure, residential housing, productive uh, firms, uh, productive capital have been destroyed directly by Russian aggression. And that is equivalent roughly to one year GDP of Ukraine. This is a huge, huge shock. <clears throat> when we talk about post-war reconstruction of Ukraine, we are talking about much bigger amounts because the war is still continuing. Uh, there is a huge loss of human capital. And so Ukraine, Ukrainian government is talking about $750 billion of needs for post-war reconstruction. Our estimates are a bit, uh, when I say our, that is a team of Western Ukrainian uh, economists, including a few former chief economists of IMF and two Ukrainian economists, president of Kiev School of Economics, Timothy Milovanov and Berkeley <coughs> professor uh, Yuri Gordnichenko. Our estimates are more modest, but still we are in the range of several hundred billion dollars. So the situation in Ukraine is difficult and it's hard to disagree with Iberdi's forecast that it's uh, the decline in GDP this year is catastrophic and then this uncertainty is very high. On Russia, Russia uh, broke uh, the world record in terms of number of sanctions. Russia is well ahead of Iran now. Iran has been working on this for decades. Russia has achieved that within a year and uh, these sanctions have an impact. They already have a huge impact. Um, but they will have even more impact next year because the real sanctions, the oil embargo will kick in in December, January, and February. Also, G7 countries and EU announced that they will enforce oil price cap, therefore hitting the major uh, source of fiscal revenues and hard currency for Russia. And so next year will be actually much more difficult for Russia even compared to this this year in many, many dimensions. But already now Russia is running a large fiscal deficit. So it's not surprising that uh, Mr. Putin has decided um, uh, switching from paying soldiers to recruiting soldiers for free, announcing partial mobilization a week ago. So situation is difficult in both countries, but for very, very different reasons. Thank you. Thank you, Sergey. Beata, Central Asia is quite interesting because the you know the economies there are often highly dependent on Russia, for example. They're sandwiched between Russia and China, but they're looking you know quite surprisingly resilient. I mean, inflation's high, but otherwise growth is still continuing. Uh, indeed, we were very worried about Central Asia a few months ago, as Central Asian economies are heavily dependent on remittances from Russia and on the Russian infrastructure and financial services for trade. However, they surprised us. Um, remittances remained very strong as labor demand in Russia was high and as ruble remained strong. And also Central Asia managed to turn itself into a hub for re-exports uh, from 
China. So it is serving as an intermediary between China, East Asia, and Russia when it comes to trade. This is done both by firms as well as by individuals, kind of reminiscent of shuttle trade of the 1990s. Uh, also, Armenia and Georgia have done surprisingly well, registering double-digit growth in the first half of this year. And that was driven by exodus of Russians, often educated Russian, often IT specialists who set up um, firms in Armenia and Georgia. And then, of course, there was tourism as most as Europe as Europe closed its airspace um, to Russian to air traffic, um, Armenia and Georgia were were able to um, benefit in terms of tourism inflows. Um, so thank you. Over to you, Jonathan. Yes, thank you, Beata. It's certainly uh, true. Uh, having travelled around that region quite a lot in recent months, you really notice the large number of uh, Russian visitors uh, for a whole load of different reasons. Um, let's let's go to the southern and eastern Mediterranean, Heike. What, what are things looking like there? Thank you, Jonathan. Um, so I'm actually um, in Tunis, uh, which feels a little bit at the eye of the storm of sort of indirect impacts uh, being felt everywhere from the war uh, on Ukraine, namely through food, energy and overall inflation. So, yes, um, you know, there has been quite a resilience after the COVID pandemic, but now countries at different levels have been severely hit differently from on food and energy, depending on their dependencies. But today, for example, in Tunisia, 50 percent of grain imports are still coming from Russia and Ukraine. I just I'm just here to support EBRD's food security emergency program to in, to help countries to help Tunisia really importing grain at this critical juncture. But we also see real pressures on inflation being exacerbated by political transition that are happening in parallel. So we really see interaction effects on, on the growth. And while there's still modest growth forecasts and only a slight uh, reduction for next year by our economists, um, the picture doesn't look uh, as rosy in terms of really um, these high population growth economy really absorbing the shocks um, to a level where it's not felt by the population. So um, still important shocks being felt, um, and in particular through food, but also through energy prices. And GDP remains muted um, for these countries and not sufficient to really absorb growth for its populations. Thank you, Heiker. I mean, uh, it's interesting that you just mentioned inflation there. And in our previous economic forecast in May, when we were actually in North Africa, of course, uh, to, to reveal the rep, we talked about runaway prices. Now, of course, inflation is really runaway, runaway. You know, we're seeing it in, in double digits across 80% of our economies. Uh, tell us a bit more, Beata, about the drivers of that. So inflation in our regions is at the level we last saw uh, two decades ago, at the end of the transition period, transition, transitional recession. About a third of inflation is driven by energy costs, a third by food prices, and a third by other factors. And the worrying part is that inflation does not seem to have peaked yet. Um, in many countries, high energy costs have not translated yet uh, into prices, retail prices paid by households. 
Um, and that means that when government uh, programs that are helping out uh, to keep these prices low are gone, if energy prices remain high for a while, this will have to happen. So inflation will increase. Um, I'm also not very optimistic about food prices going down. If you look at the futures markets, they are expecting food prices to be higher in December 2023 than they are today. And finally, um, we see that producer costs have increased in pretty much all of our countries of operations faster than consumer uh, consumer inflation. And this suggests that firms have not passed yet all this increasing cost onto the retail prices. Um, so more inflation is to come, unfortunately. Over to you, Jonathan. Yes, thank you, Beata. And Sergey, when you look at the Russian economy and inflation, what do you see? Because uh, it hasn't always been as predicted in recent months, has it? You know, it, it's, uh, it's been an interesting story. It's, it's a very interesting story. And uh, I think the uh, initial uh, few weeks of uh, the war and sanctions have arisen, have increased expectations that Russian economy is um, entering the macroeconomic crisis. On the third day of the war, uh, Western countries introduced an unprecedented uh, sanction. They pretty much froze uh, central banks reserves and therefore undermine the main tower of economic fortress, uh, fortress uh, Russia. And uh, the markets uh, went into panic. Central bank actually could close down stock exchange, close down currency exchange, introduce major controls. Some of these controls are still in place. So whenever we look at rubles exchange rate, we should not forget that foreigners, for example, cannot exit Russia, cannot sell those uh, their assets and uh, repatriate the receipts. Uh, but uh, but that initial panic subsided and uh, central bank and other economic policymakers have done a good job, um, I would say wrong job. They are part of this uh, um, regime which is killing, killing people in neighboring countries, but they've done a good job in technical sense, uh, reducing inflation. And today inflation is actually coming down. It's still high. It's still higher than in Euro area. It's a double digit year-on-year uh, -year inflation, but it's coming down. Why is it coming down? That's actually an interesting story. A lot of people point at stronger ruble and that's exactly what drives uh, uh, ruble prices down. And the ruble is stronger, not because the Russian economy is more competitive, but because Russian uh, economy cannot buy any imports because of sanctions by Western governments and Western firms which introduce uh, uh, limits on their cooperation with Russia uh, voluntarily, the imports from the West to Russia went down by a factor of two. The same can be said uh, about Chinese uh, trade with Russia. And uh, Russia actually classified this data. So these data are not very precise. You need to go and look for Russia's partners to identify how much they sell to Russia. But still, if you don't have imports, you don't need dollars because you cannot do anything with those dollars, which actually reduces the um, dollar uh, value and increases ruble value. And so this story of Russian ruble becoming stronger and Russian inflation coming down is not a proxy for Russia's strength. It's actually a side effect of this huge impact on Russian economy because of decline in imports. Mm -hmm. And so this is quite a story. It's quite unprecedented that a, a country like this, a big 
reasonably developed country has been cut off of global economy. And so this is a story which I'm sure will be studied by economists and policymakers for years to come. And so this decline in inflation can teach us a lot in terms of economic theory, data, and so on. But for the moment, uh, Russian inflation is high, but it's not a runaway inflation if you think about other BRD countries such as Turkey or Lebanon. Just a quick follow-up on that, Sergey. I mean, I was wondering as well whether the import substitution from China for Western products had actually also helped to subdue inflation a bit because uh, presumably they'd be cheaper. Uh, yes and no, because certain things China cannot substitute. Uh, China cannot substitute uh, Taiwanese uh, semiconductors, uh, semiconductors coming from Taipei, China. Uh, so this is something that uh, Chinese firms cannot yet produce. Certain things Chinese uh, companies will not export to China, to Russia, uh, because they're afraid of secondary sanctions. In the US, there is a bipartisan consensus that for the US national interest and US national security, China is a much bigger threat than Russia. And so whenever there is an opportunity to sanction an advanced uh, Chinese producer, that will be done and that's been done. And so companies like Huawei are very cautious and actually don't want to sell advanced technology to Russia. So certain things uh, pass through third countries. So there are uh, reports of uh, Russian tourists uh, coming with suitcases of semiconductors into Russia. Um, so we see, interestingly, there is an IBRD country, Turkey, which does has an, an increase in the trade with Russia, despite all other countries having a decline in trade with Russia. We see sometimes that, for example, Italy doesn't trade with Russia as much as it did, but it trades more with Turkey and Turkey trades more with Russia. So all kinds of stories like this circulate, but still, this is not contributing to inflation. This is contributing uh, to lower inflation. This is contributing to higher inflation because all these costs of building up those um, uh, short, uh, all these uh, parallel imports routes, this is costly. And that contributes to disadvantage of Russian economy. So sanctions, even if you circumvent them, the circumvention is costly and contributes to inflation. But most importantly, Russia's cut off technological frontier, be it in the US or China. We see that Russian government now officially goes to Iran to buy Iranian military technology. And unofficially, we see leaks from US intelligence services, which says Russia is now buying North Korean military technology, which, I, as you can imagine, is a huge humiliation to Russian defense complex. But um, overall, no, sanctions don't help to fight inflation uh, because of import substitution. Okay. Uh, and Heike, you mentioned inflation briefly uh, a few minutes ago. I mean, I, I guess in, in your region, in the SEMED, Southern and Eastern Mediterranean region, we all know inflation is not just an economic danger, it's a political danger, isn't it? So we saw, we've seen that in the past, uh, that what high food prices, for example, can trigger. No, absolutely, Jonathan. And maybe coming back to Beata's statistic on the contributors to inflation, I think in the SEMED region, food inflation is actually probably even more than a third of the drivers of inflation. So food is really at the center of inflation, in particular, maybe also because energy, there has been more in the, in the wake of renewable energy generation of domestically uh, generated electricity, but food is really the core. And, um, you know, and I agree with Sergey that uh, Lebanon, of course, in my region is the one with runaway inflation with many domestic triggers, 
but also in the other countries, inflation reaches levels that are beyond the economic impact on the population and potentially trigger political un unhappiness. And actually today in Tunisia, I just came out of a meeting with the Minister of Economy that we still have, you know, the pictures of what bread price inflation triggered. And actually it has driven now countries to be more susceptible for negotiation in serious uh, ways with the IMF. So basically all the countries in the Semet region are undertaking IMF programs. And even in, for example, in the case of Tunisia, difficult negotiations with the union have been concluded really on the back of a fear that food price inflation can really trigger a more severe political instability. So I fear, I think countries have learned also from the past food price shocks in this region and are trying to find solutions that get them over, you know, at least the next 12 months so that, um, you know, they have some room for also support for the most vulnerable groups on, on, on food prices and hope that in the next 12 months, food prices may come down a bit. They all invested heavily in domestic production, although that may not always be super water efficient. But I mean, listening to Beata and the uh, futures of grain for 2023, that's not very hopeful. But I think the next 12 months will be critical in containing food price inflation in particular for this region. All right. Thank you, Heike. Uh, just a reminder, by the way, to everyone watching, whether you're watching us on LinkedIn or YouTube, please feel free to uh, post your questions in the comment boxes. We'll be picking them up in uh, some of them in a few minutes and uh, asking our panel. Uh, as we know, inflation you know, is being fueled by that sharp rise in energy prices. We mentioned it quite a few times. Beata, what's happening with gas pricing? Well, it's worth remembering that unlike markets for oil, which are global, markets for natural gas are regional. The war broke out, broke out at the time when prices of natural gas in Europe were already going up. That was partially driven by Russia already restricting supplies um, to Europe, not filling in the storage tanks uh, completely. Um, right now, prices of natural gas in Europe are about 2.5 times higher in real terms than they were in 2021. Um, but you know, if you take a longer perspective, um, this number is even higher. So if you look at relative to the previous decade, um, this is in sharp contrast to natural gas prices in the US, uh, which remained substantially lower. This is lowering competitiveness of Western Europe as well as of emerging Europe. And unfortunately, it's very hard to remedy the situation um, because buying gas requires infrastructure, both on the buyer side and on the supplier side. You either need a pipeline or an LNG facility and building an LNG facility takes three years. So yes, we expect that around 2024, there will be new LNG facilities uh, coming on board in the US, but until then, um, there is uh, little hope that if the current situations continue, the prices will go down. Thank you. Okay, and, and Sergey, it's not just uh, gas prices, obviously, which have been rising sharply. What about other commodities? What are they doing? Well, um, uh, the global market for oil is stabilizing. Uh, as we've just discussed, the wheat prices are actually going back down to pre-war levels. 
Um, the reason for that is the war has had a major impact on global economy, not just Russian and Ukrainian economy. And uh, uh, the recent OECD forecast, for example, suggests that over the years 2022 and 2023, global economy will have lost uh, almost $3 trillion, which is like 3% of annual GDP. So this destroyed demand, demand of course, contributes to uh, decline in commodity crisis, uh, prices. There is a fear factor there, of course, which pushes them up, right? The war is not finished, uh, and recent events suggest that, uh, well, uh, Mr. Putin can go farther than markets expected. And uh, this, of course, scares everybody. So prices are in between this global recession and uh, geopolitical risks. And uh, once we were on the subject of uh, of uh, gas prices, we are in September 28. Uh, yesterday, we had uh, explosions in the pipelines. It's uh, something that never happened. And again, it's something that it's impossible to, uh, to forecast. And uh, that suggests that that may be new things which we are going to see soon, which will contribute to higher prices. But at the moment, at the moment, I would say that unfortunately for the wrong reasons, for the bad reasons, um, but uh, commodity prices are, are, are at moderate levels. Okay, I mean, you Except brought for us gas. back to, you brought us back to gas, uh, Sergey, as you say, uh, and, and it shows just how important in all of these scenarios uh, gas is. It still remains, of course, in high demand across EBRD regions. Beata, how do you see the dependency of EBRD countries on Russian gas? EBRD countries, in particular, rely on Russian gas when it comes to production of heat. Even though over time, as you can see in this graph, uh, this reliance on natural gas for heat production has gone down as renewables and nuclear uh, energy plays a greater role. However, there are huge differences across countries. Um, so in North Macedonia, in Moldova, in Hungary, in Ukraine, in Serbia, uh, gas accounts for about three quarters of source of derived heat. And, and that is um, very problematic given the scarce supply of natural gas. Um, gas matters less for electricity production. Uh, it matters somewhat for industry. There are, of course, um, there is also the impact on West Germany. Should, West, uh, should supplies of gas be cut off to Europe, um, many parts of German industry will stop producing, and that will translate into lower demand for imports from Central Europe and from North Africa as well. Mm. Thank you. Yeah, Sergey, let me, let me come to you. I mean, do you think Russia can afford to turn the gas off? And, and if so, what would that mean? Um, yes and no. Uh, we can see that uh, when Russia started to play those games with Nord Stream 1 in July, Russia had a huge budget deficit in uh, July 2022, and it probably forced Russia to cut fiscal spending in August. So uh, instead of July deficit of 8% of GDP, the August deficit was 3% uh, of GDP. Uh, and probably that forced Russia to rethink its military strategy instead of trying to use the petrodollars, the gas revenues to recruit soldiers to pay them 
Russian government just announced what they call partial mobilization when they just grab people and send them to Ukraine for free. And so whether that means that they can afford not having oil and gas revenue or they can because this mobilization is definitely unpopular and that's why it was so much delayed. Uh, but I think, I think of course, um, Putin's strategy, Putin's plan is to blackmail Europe during this very difficult winter, but it comes at a huge cost to Russian budget and to Russian political situation, because the war used to be a special military operation that the majority of Russians could watch on the screens. Today, it comes for every Russian man uh, of uh, draftable age. So this, this is going to be difficult for Mr. Putin. Now, the real shock will come later. As I mentioned, uh, oil price cap, oil embargo, that's coming in two months, and that will be a real test. Why? Because last year, even though, as Beata correctly mentioned, oil prices were already, sorry, gas prices were already high last year. But if you look at the revenues from exporting oil and exporting gas, oil revenues were three times more important for Russian budget. And so that's the oil, which matters even more than the gas uh, for Russian budget, for Putin's ability to continue this war. And I think, I think the Western uh, governments are doing a great job uh, targeting oil two months from now. All right, and let's, let's stick with that thought on Western governments. We are so many countries like uh, France, Germany, the UK, certainly all feeling the impact of uh, those high energy prices. Where do you think this leaves the, the green transition? Because we're hearing, for example, more and more uh, fossil fuel capacity being used. We're hearing coal uh, increasingly important, for example, in some countries. Uh, it, it's, it doesn't look good, does it? Well, actually, it looks reasonably good. I mean, in the short run, there will be a setback for the green transition as coal is relatively cheaper than natural gas. And as the shortages of natural gas make countries turn towards coal. However, we've also seen greater resolve of Western governments um, to invest in renewables, to make such investments simpler in terms of procedures, permits. So if anything, I would think that the current crisis has intensified the commitment and the resolve uh, to push green transition through. Thank you. Okay, and uh, Heike, we talked a bit about food earlier. I think we can see uh, a bit of a chart, can't we, to show just a bit more detail about what is going on in the Southern and Eastern Mediterranean. No, absolutely. And as I said uh, earlier, that uh, the one third contribution of food prices to overall inflation is probably a lower bound for the southern eastern Mediterranean region. So food price inflation has a higher pass through to overall inflation. And uh, this is indeed particularly worrying for the Semite region. And the um, consequence for the governments uh, in terms of diversifying grain imports, I mean, Egypt uh, famously imported 80% of its grain from Russia and Ukraine, um, now is looking at markets like India, uh, Canada, France, but this takes time. It also invests in domestic increase of production, um, which we will hopefully see later in the year. Um, but um, so the, the effect and the mitigants will only come through fully uh, early next year. And so 
this year you will still see a huge impact on on food prices um definitely and also the secondary impact from energy prices on food through fertilizers most of the fertilizer production highly energy intensive and fertilizer prices in particular in this region are at record levels does it feel to you Heike, that uh, governments in your region are on top of all of this i think they they have really woken up to, to the fact that this is a more persistent shock than maybe initially anticipated and that actually diversifying is more complicated and challenging. So we see huge uh, also demands for support from organizations like the EBRD and help buffer some of the increases of prices in emergency uh, facilities. We see um, more efforts in building uh, additional storage capacity. We even see governments regionally trying to come up with regional programs for food security between Egypt and Jordan, for example. So I think governments, uh, while maybe initially uh, being underestimating the effects on, on that region a little bit, have now fully um, you know, focused on this. Um, and in particular, uh, also seeing the impact on energy prices on, on food and what can be done. So we see also huge programs on renewables being um, looked at, in particular in conjunctions with uh, water, water for agriculture, but also water for, for the consumption. So uh, I think that's the top priority on most governments' minds at the moment. And Beata, when you look more widely at what governments are doing across EBRD countries, does it look as though uh, they're doing enough to control uh, the impact of all of this? Well, in some cases, they are doing more than they should, right? So what they should be doing is helping households, which are energy insecure, helping poorer households um, who spend a higher chunk of their income on necessities such as food and energy. Uh, so means-tested, transfers to the poorest would be the optimal policy. But instead, we see governments helping everyone. We see governments uh, lowering VAT rates to zero. And that's not only very costly to government coffers, it also, uh, it also does not create an incentive for richer households to save electricity to save on heating. So by breaking this link between prices um, and, and costs of energy, um, we are making green transition uh, slower because we should be letting these price signals uh, do their work. And you know, it's countries in our region as well as some advanced economies that are guilty of that um, because they are worried about political fallout. Thank you. Can I stay with you, Beata, and look at savings? Because, uh, you know, we know huge amounts of personal savings were built up uh, in some countries during the pandemic. Uh, it, how does that uh, play into all of this? What is the state of personal finances in many of our countries? So there are two interesting um, trends there. So on the one hand, um, we see savings going down as households are spending um, savings accumulated during COVID. Um, on the other hand, we also see households struggling with mortgage payments as interest rates are going up. 
um, in many countries, um, a vast majority of mortgages have variable interest rates, which suddenly makes payments uh, skyrocket. Um, and you know the counterpart of these savings um, being run down is the current account deficit. If a country uh, consumes more than it saves, uh, it needs to borrow and it borrows from abroad. And unfortunately now this, these current account deficits which are emerging are not financed by capital inflows because we have seen some net outflows from the region as uncertainty uh, as um, uncertainty kicked in as investors uh, were taking flight um, towards um, dollar, towards safer markets. Um, so this is leading to pressures on external balance. And I think um, North Africa summit is one of the regions when these, where these pressures are visible. Thank you. Mm. And Sergey, how worried should we be about rising government debt and, and global debt levels more generally? Well, we should be very worried. Uh, we exited COVID with a great increase in government debt in developed and developing countries. And at that point, uh, people would say it's high, but interest rates are low. But as we are now facing inflation, the problem is that we need to raise interest rates and therefore servicing this debt will be very difficult. And that of course is linked to the issue of savings. If you have sovereign defaults, that people who have their savings and government bonds, they will suffer as well. So this is, this is uh, why macroeconomists don't like neither excessive debt nor inflation, and especially when they're both combined. And so we are in a very, very difficult situation. and. Uh, Unfortunately, wherever you look, uh, there are reasons to worry. And just staying with you, Sergey, uh, we are seeing, aren't we, in some ways, a sort of structural shift in economies as they're, they're getting to grips in a way with what you might call, you know, most countries, obviously not Russia and Ukraine, but most other countries, uh, a sort of undeclared war and they're, they're structuring their economies appropriately. Well, uh, we are far away from the war economy. In any, any, uh, anything close to that would probably be Ukraine, but even Ukraine continues to function as a market economy, uh, more or less. Um, in Russia, you have actually new laws which allow mobilization of industry, but that's not been also done. Uh, we, in, in terms of structure of the economy, the world faces huge problems, but still remains on a kind of normal peacetime trajectory. Uh, but uh, yes, this is a big war. And yes, it's going to cost all of us a lot of money. And we're just uh, starting to understand how much. Okay, um, let's go to some of the questions that we've had in from people because we have had quite a lot. Uh, and uh, I'm mindful of time. So, so let's start with uh, a couple of questions from LinkedIn, uh, which someone has put on here. Uh, hello, what should be done to stop inflation rising further? Uh, is just increasing key rates of central banks going to be enough to stop uh, inflation going up? What else can be done? And someone else has said, how can the banks deal or work with inflation? So, uh, Beata, maybe I'll start with you. Monetary policy, is that enough? Um, yes. So, in advanced economies, um, there is this debate going on now about um, you know, are central banks 
tightening too much? Uh, are they overdoing it? However, in emerging markets, what you see is that there is this at least 30% component of inflation that is not due to supply side, not due to the energy shock and to the higher food prices. And in some countries, um, such as Poland, it's more than 50%. So I think there is a role for central banks that they need to play further. But in particular, what they need to focus on is not only increasing interest rates, but communicating in a very consistent and credible manner with the public. Um, because in emerging markets, a large segment of the population remembers 1990s, um, remembers hyperinflation, people are much quicker to increase their inflationary expectations. And once these inflationary expectations get completely detached from the inflation target, it will become even more costly um, to fight inflation. So I cannot overstate the importance of good, credible communications of showing that central bank actions are independent uh, from the government wishes. Thank you. That would be good, yes. Uh, Sergey, uh, what do you think needs to be done? Well, um, I'm still I'm still into macroeconomic orthodoxy about interest rates uh, uh, policies, but uh, one source of inflation which started before the war is uh, supply chain disruptions, uh, which uh, to a great extent are driven by zero COVID policy in China. These are now being improved, and uh, I hope I hope uh, we'll see major changes in that direction, and that will help things. We already see that cost of transportation of goods, um, the cost of trans tra container transportation is coming down. So I, I remain optimistic here. But indeed, uh, indeed, uh, inflation is a monetary problem, and it has a monetary solution, which is monetary policy by central banks. Yeah, absolutely. And Heike, interestingly enough, in the SEMED region, you know, sometimes in the past, of course, we've seen price controls as one way of, of dealing with inflation on some on some. Yes, uh, in, in some of the countries, in particular, sort of uh, essential goods, um, price controls were used not very effectively. Um, but uh, we also have to, go, to remember that sort of the path through of monetary policy is less than perfect in some of some of the um, emerging markets. And we have also uh, constraints on exchange rates. A uh, number of exchange rates are pegged. Central banks are only slowly moving to inflation targets. So the monetary instruments are less effective. And also maybe highlighting another point that Beata mentioned, the communication around uh, monetary policy instruments is also less effective than maybe in advanced economies. So the, um, the set of instruments are, are more limited um, and also um, more challenging monetary policies around um, exchange rate pegs in a number of the countries are also adding to this, uh, to, to this challenge. So I, I actually think in addition on uh, work on competitiveness and some of these supply chain disruptions that Sergei was mentioning, are also an important way for particular North African and Middle Eastern countries to help uh, make uh, sort of a particular um, goods import more efficient and reduce um, frictions around importing and regional value chains. Um, so because monetary policy, unfortunately, is not as efficient as it could be in, and as it is in advanced economies. 
Mm, no, that, that's true. Uh, let me look at another aspect of this, uh, Beata. We've had a, com a question on LinkedIn. Could you please comment on the quantitative impact of migration on your forecast? For example, Poland took the biggest wave uh, from Ukraine. Obviously, this questioner is talking about the country's population increased by around 10% within a few months. That's unprecedented in its history in terms of demand for housing food, social support, partially increasing the labor supply, of course. Uh, some other countries are in a similar situation. Um, so let me perhaps take the case of Poland, which I know the best. Um, so more than three million refugees um, registered at some point in Poland. At the moment, I understand that 1.2 million are still there. Out of that, 440,000 um, have been absorbed by the labor market. They have found jobs. This is an incredible achievement if you consider uh, that a large share of refugees are underage children, that most of them are uh, women who, because of childcare, are, have limited ability to work. So um, that has been a huge success. And I hope that you know some of these refugees will go back um, when the situation in Ukraine uh, improves, when the war ends. But even if many of them do not go back, they will serve as a bridge between Ukraine, Poland, Western Europe, EU, and they will, through, their, through these linkages, they will create um, new investments. Um, they will bring investment, they will bring knowledge, they will bring new op export opportunities um, to their country. Thank you. Thank you very much. And there's an interesting question here, Sergey, about uh, migration to Central Asia countries and the Caucasus. You know, how would uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, uh, the question says, how will they be impacted mid and long term? Because they have had moderate policies towards migration to Central Asia. I assume they're talking about the large number of Russians going, going to Central Asia. Um, and how will such dependent economies adapt to Russian aggression is what the question is. Uh, thanks, uh, Jonathan. Beat has already talked about the impact on Central Asian countries. Uh, the recent wave of migration is actually very large. In the last week, uh, we are talking about about 100,000 people who moved to Kazakhstan. Um, uh, if you look at the at the uh, size of uh, Kazakhstan's uh, population or economy, this is not. Uh, uh, as dramatic as influx of Ukrainian refugees into Poland, for example. Uh, however, it's important. These people are probably better educated than average Russian. And so in the midterm, it's probably good news for development in Central Asian countries. But uh, talking about the overall impact of the war on neighboring countries, there is no doubt. Things are really, really negative. Without this war, everybody would be better off, including countries which are far away, but especially countries which are close. War is cannot benefit anybody, and uh, everybody will be here. Yeah, I think that's a really good point to, for us to uh, remember, isn't it, Sergey? You know, I mean, it is the general impact on all of this, which is really quite staggering. If you think about uh, what it means for pretty much the whole, the whole of the uh, of, of the, the globe. Absolutely, and uh, we we are now uh, at the BRD. A BRD, like other multilateral development banks, 
think very hard how to leverage their resources, which are limited, uh, to help uh, address uh, the global problems, including global poverty, including climate uh, change. We are talking about sustainable development goals. We are talking about how much we need to invest in that. And this war is destroying this investment at a staggering speed. And so that is, that I, feel, I feel quite personal as a person who worked at the BRD, that a lot of my efforts have been just canceled mm. uh, tenfold by mm. Mr. Putin. Uh, not even speaking about a uh, huge humanitarian tragedy in, in Ukraine. No, it's certainly true. Thank you, uh, Sergey. A question that's coming in on LinkedIn. It's a good uh, general economics question. Do you think that trying to enhance production and to increase the supply of goods is a good tool to decrease or even control inflation worldwide? Beata. Um, I don't think our problem is insufficient supply of goods. Um, I think thanks to trade, right, we have um, benefited greatly from access to a large amount of goods produced very cheaply by China. So I don't think that's where the problem lies. I think the problem um, was seen in shipping disruptions, Sergey mentioned in zero COVID policy in China, but actually these disruptions were not limited only to China. Um, we did a survey of importers and exporters over the summer, and 50% of firms in our regions reported experiencing disruptions not connected to China. Um, now, what, what we see also happening is global value chains are being reconfigured. Um, and they are being reconfigured in order to increase their resilience. Um, and it would seem natural that some of our countries of operation would benefit from this reconfiguration. But the process is being slowed down by the war because nobody invests in times of uncertainty. And in particular, um, nobody wants to invest in countries that are very close to the war. Thank you. Mm. And Heiko, if we look at the Semed region on this question, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because certainly for many years, there's been a question about whether domestic production in that region is as strong as it should be. And there is a sort of over-reliance sometimes on, on imports. Indeed. And there is um, sort of different efforts in terms of integrating into regional or global value chains, in particular in the sort of some countries have been quite successful. So if you look at Morocco, automotive um, industry is very integrated into uh, the French automotive industry. Tunisia, also some successes there. Um, Egypt, a little bit in terms of industrial inter integration into some sub-Saharan African countries. But I think that's um, sort of smaller examples here and there, maybe with a big success uh, in Morocco. But maybe one, one thing also that we haven't really mentioned is that some of the uh, North African countries that actually have some gas reserves are now also looking to actually accelerate the green transition to integrate the gas exports to Europe a bit more. And on the back of higher uh, intensity of renewables will also hopefully make some green value chains more competitive. So I think for the medium term, we can also see that, that uh, higher density of renewables and more ambitious targets for solar and wind on the back of being able to sell gas to Europe will allow the integration potentially of more green value chains and green industrial production. We're talking to some clients on green 
uh, aluminium productions um, in the future. So there is also some shifts in the industrial production in these countries towards more, um, um, the most prominent, of course, in green hydrogen, green value chains. Okay, thank you. Uh, Sergey, a question on LinkedIn. How long will the ruble stay strong for? Well, uh, let's see what happens after December, after embargo kicks in and after oil price cap uh, is introduced. And that is going to be the big test for the ruble. So I think uh, my money is on, uh, if this embargo is really enforced, my money is on uh, weaker ruble after that. Okay, and actually we'll stay with you. This one, you will like a question on YouTube. Uh, how should Ukraine's post-war reconstruction be financed? You've written quite extensively on this, but uh, just give us some headlines, not, not the whole paper. Right, uh, so uh, one source of money is of course Russia's frozen assets. So Ukraine will sue Russia. It will probably win the case and uh, a court martial will come to Russia and say, you have to pay. Russia will say, no, we will never pay that. Um, we are a UN Security Council's uh, permanent member. We will veto any decision by the UN to force us to pay reparations. And so then Ukraine will go to banks where Russian assets are sitting and say, look, we have this document which allows us to pick up uh, Russian assets. So this is one source. After Putin, the Russia will probably agree to reparations. And um, like Iraq has been paying Kuwait for 30 years out of its oil revenues, Russia will do something like this. Um, and uh, of course, EU, US, G7 countries will also pitch in. And I'm sure EBRD will participate in this effort as well. Beata, what, uh, what do you, how do you see this question of, uh, of payment uh, for reconstruction? Well, I hope that we as the EBRD can play a big role in the reconstruction effort. We have been the largest institutional investor in Ukraine. Uh, this year, we are committed to invest about 1 billion. We are helping to keep the lights on. We are helping uh, to Ukraine to prepare for the heating season. We've just invested 300 million uh, to help Naftogaz make emergency uh, gas purchases in preparation for the winter. Um, so I hope we will continue to play an important role in cooperation with all the other partners that Sergey has mentioned. Thank you. Yeah, and just uh, sticking with this question around Russia and Ukraine on LinkedIn. Thank you very much for the very interesting coverage so far. You're welcome. Uh, my question would be, Gazprom has had uh, record revenues in recent months due to high gas prices. To what extent do those higher revenues allow for the Russian budget to waive future gas exports to the EU? It's an interesting question, isn't it, Sergey? In effect, you know, pumping less but earning more. What, what does that mean? That's been the case recently, in the sense that uh, oil uh, gas prices went up so much that they actually more than compensated for the reduced uh, um, flow of uh, cubic meters. But uh, as of yesterday, uh, that's, uh, that's history, because uh, Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2 are no longer functioning. And uh, in that sense, uh, this is something that is just a theoretical conversation. Hmm. And Beata, I mean, that will raise questions, won't it, about the budget situation in Russia in the future? Yes, but if you look at the, um, at the, at the foregone revenue, 
um, you know, if Russia were to stop gas exports to Europe, they would forego revenue of less than 1% of GDP. Uh, so this would hurt, but it wouldn't be devastating. Thank you. Okay, interesting. Listen, I think let's leave it there. It is clearly going to be a very interesting and very, very challenging few months. And, uh, you know, we will be coming back to this question of the forecasts, of course, at various points uh, in the months ahead. I'd like to thank uh, you all very much, Heike in Tunisia, Beata in London, uh, Sergei uh, in Paris. Thank you to all of you, of course, for being with us. Our latest economic forecasts are available on the EBRD website, ebrd.com. And if you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to our podcast, Fearonomics, where we discuss this and a lot, lot more. You can download it on iTunes and uh, reviewing and rating it, of course, will help others to find us. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by the EBRD. We'll be back soon with the next episode. In the meantime, remember to review and rate us. It will help others to find us. Thank you and goodbye.